that um, like when you're like when you're done with that card, just like throw it on the ground. Like psh, we don't need that anymore. Good morning. My name is Matt. I am one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad to be here. I am pretty sure at some point I may slip and fall on the water here. It's distinctly possible. I may want a towel because I just don't pay attention to my feet. So if we can grab that. Um, if you can't see online, it's a little micro-baptism thing we're working out. Just kidding. All right. Um, well, as humans, uh, we have this, this hidden talent. Uh, we're quite good at not being ourselves. Um, to many of us, we, we settle for, in a sense, a, a cheap imitation, if you word of, will, of ourselves. Um, while we spend our lives oftentimes just constantly wondering if there's anything more to our lives than what we're experiencing, than what we're really living right now. However, most of us, well, we, don't, we come by that choice somewhat like unintentionally. It's, honestly, it's, it's something we, in a sense, stumble into, not something that we feel like we're choosing. That's because, you know, our world is filled with imitations. So living a counterfeit life seems to, in a sense, come naturally to us. So let me give you an illustration of that. And with that, I'll grab a towel. You got it, Priya. Um, imitation is never more apparent than when you're walking down the, um, the aisle at the at church, at church. The aisle at church. Aisle at church. When you're, I got it. You got it? I got it. When you're walking down the aisle at the, uh, the grocery store, Recently been to the grocery store and uh, been down the, uh, the cereal aisle. Anyone? You notice that there's kind of the classic cereals, right? You got the, um, you know, you got the, the brand names that we all recognize. And then you have the, the, I'll just call them the knockoffs. And I think all of us have had that moment, at least many of us have had that moment where our parents have decided we're going to, you know, save a buck or two. And we're going to go from moving from like Cheerios. I'm watching several teenagers go like this, like this just happens to my family. And you're going from like Cheerios to like crispy oats, you know, or something of that nature. And you find yourself saying, this is not the same thing. Rice crispers are not the same as rice krispies. There may not be such a thing as fortunate marshmallows, but that would be the option for Lucky Charms. There is such a thing as fruit rounds that are fruit loops, but they're not. Yeah, some of those are a little made up, but the promise of the imitation, right, is, is that it, it will give us all the taste for about half the price. That's, that's the promise, right? And of course, it does not live up to that. First, when you, when you taste the imitation, it, it's somewhat like the real thing until the, the aftertaste kicks in, right? And we find ourselves saying, this is not the real thing. Now, here's the thing. If you eat them long enough, you forget what the original tasted like, right? You may actually think this is what Cheerios taste like until you have Cheerios again. And then you remember once again, this is not the real thing. What's true, true of the cereal aisle is true of our lives as well. Too often we settle for the promise of an imitation that we can all have, you know, the taste of our life at half the cost. And so we go about living, frankly, mediocre lives with a false sense of who God is and a false sense of who he's made us to be. 
convincing ourselves the whole time that this is just as good as it gets. But every once in a while, someone comes along and you experience them and they seem to be living in a different context. They seem to be alive and maybe awake in a way that, that you're not experiencing or that you don't know. And they, in a sense, create by who they are with you an imagination of what could be. It stirs your heart. It stirs your senses. And honestly, that's some of what we're trying to do here this fall. It's through a series to try and, try and wake our hearts up to say there is something more than an imitation. There is a true and real call from God to you. And so today, I want to call you towards your true self. In some ways, there will be some initial costs to that. And it will probably maybe feel like more of a cost than the imitation life promises to be. But in the end, God promises that he won't leave you with a disappointing aftertaste. So... That's exactly what Jeremiah does when he calls the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 4. And so let's look at that passage together this morning. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. God says, if you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and, and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, last week we, we began this series, right, the, on purpose, right, discovering and delighting in God's calling. Discovering and delighting in God's calling. And, and some of the big idea of what we're working through, through the book of Jeremiah, is what we saw in Jeremiah chapter 1, that God has a particular calling. That you're more unique than you think. We discover that, that God's been dreaming about your life from the beginning of time, that, that he, he knew you and knit you together in your mother's womb, that he has prepared a purpose and a plan for you. He's working out a divine design and a divine destiny for you. So now today we want, we want to take a step further because just because we have God's clear intended design and, and God's purposeful destiny that's shown to us, it doesn't mean that we'll step into it. This week, we're going to drop into Jeremiah chapter 4 to hear Jeremiah's initial first call to the people of Israel to return to their true selves. In this passage, the people of God have settled for, well, an imitation of themselves for sure, but it's actually far worse than that. They settled for a worse version of themselves. Like I mentioned last week, and we mentioned regularly here at Roswell Community Church, the story of the Bible is a story of, God, of a God who doesn't remain distant from his creation. Instead, it's a picture of both, and we see this in Jeremiah, we see this throughout the scriptures, that God is intentionally involved in his world. It's a story of a God who is purposeful and purposeful, purposeful and personal continues to bend over backwards over and over again to call his people to himself and to the dream that he has for them to be and live out. 
And yet, of course, throughout the entirety of the scriptures, we see people constantly rejecting his love and chasing after things that are not him or his things, lesser things. We witnessed this last year, right, as we read through the scriptures together. There's a surprisingly little time and people in the Bible who are a story of faithfulness, faithfulness through their years to God as their God. And that's the default human state. That's what the scriptures would tell us. That's where we begin. That's where we are, but by the grace of God. Now, most of the Bible is a story of God's people settling for far less than God's best. Turning to everything but God and designing their life without him and certainly without him over their life. And God desires this intimate relationship with his people. And the implications of that are pretty amazing. They're, they're amazing for us in that it means that his be in, being in our life, him being a part of us, with us, means that we have an opportunity for joy and hope, for peace, to understand and know love. But him being intimately connected and relating to our lives also means for his sake that he is emotionally woven to us. He has woven his heart into and with us, which opens him up to being rejected. If you remember in the book of Jeremiah, or if you read the book of Jeremiah, you find very quickly, as it, as it turns out, God gets rejected a lot. And it's painful. And God doesn't hide his feelings of rejection from his people. No, no. The words of Jeremiah chapter 2 and chapter 3 are this vivid picture of what the people are doing to God by their rejection of him. How he's experiencing their rejection of his love giving themselves to everything but him. It reads like the diary of a, of a wounded lover who's been scorned. It reads like the lament of a parent, of a father or a mother who, who can't figure out why their, why their son or their daughter is rejecting and rebelling against them. Let me give you a couple of examples. Jer Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 27 God says, you princes, you priests, you prophets, you people, he says, who say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth, for they have turned their backs to me and not their face to have relationship. But in the same time, but in the time of their trouble, they say, arise, save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourselves? Let them arise. If they can save you, in your time of distress, for as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. We move to chapter 3, and here goes God saying, Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see, where have you not been ravished? By the waysides you have sat avoid, awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You have polluted the land with your vile whoredom. Anyone who's been betrayed or rejected or rebelled against knows the pain and anguish of what this experience feels like, what Jeremiah 2 and 3 are describing. And it's God's emotional outburst filled with this vivid language that, frankly, if you read it, it's like it's uncomfortable with the tension in it. It's like a wounded parent. We see God caught between anguish and anger, between, between a longing and then a loss like a lover who's been cheated on over and over again. He dreams about his people's return in one moment and then, and then at the same time hopes that they'll never come back again. And yet God's love for his people keeps him coming back time and time again, calling them back to become, being the people that he made them to be. 
And one chapter later in Jeremiah 4, which we just read, that we hear God's impassioned desire for the relationship between him and his people to be renewed. However, in order for this relationship to be renewed, Israel is going to have to become the kind of people that were designed to be by him. It can't happen without a breakdown of some sort. It's a breakdown that makes possible the reality of their false selves being coming, their true selves. That leads us to really the first principle. God's invitation to break up and peel back the false self. In Jeremiah chapter one, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter four, verse one, we hear God's heart for his people to return to him. He wants, he doesn't want just their performance. He wants their pursuit. He doesn't want just their behavior. He wants all of who they are. They're very beating beings. He, he's not interested in, in custom. He wants the very core and essence of who they are. He wants his people's passion. He wants their ambition. He wants to be the one that they seek after, the one that they sacrifice for, the one that, that they, they love. That's what he's longing for. It's what God's always wanted through all of time. It's what he wants from us today, what he wants from you today, both from us and for us. But if God's people are going to turn to the true version of themselves and be in a right relationship with him, there's two things that are going to have to happen, according to Jeremiah. First, verse 3, God says, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. He says to Israel, listen, you've got to break up the fallow ground because you're all farmers. You know exactly what that means. They need to upend what is dead. The places that have become calloused and empty, hardened, need to be plowed up and turned over. He's telling them, listen, stop planting in soil that won't yield. Stop looking to, for flourishing in either the thorny places or the depleted soil. Break up your fallow ground. And then secondly, in verse 4, he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. They're going to need to be peeled back, circumcised. They will need to be exposed. They're their deepest level. All their questions, all their doubts, all their affections, all their struggles, all their shortcomings will need to be peeled back. In short, they must cut off, they, they must remove the failed and false versions of themselves from their lives. And what's true of the people in Jeremiah chapter 4 is true of us. If we're going to become the kind of people that God designed us to be, we too, we have to plow up the fallow ground of our lives. We need to, to peel back and allow our lives to become exposed to the counterfeit versions of who we do and maybe have become. We need to break up the anemic and false and dead beliefs about God and about ourselves that we become so comfortable and accustomed to. You see, in theory, it's, it's really easy. It's really easy to just be the version that God intended to be, right? In theory, it sounds simple. Like, yeah, yeah, I want to agree with that. I want to be that. But the truth is that there's other versions of ourselves that are competing, powerfully vying for us to live out their narrative. Even though it's a shadowy version, it still has power and draw to pull us away from who we're designed and destined to be. 
And you think about it, this is why, and this is ultimately what our sin really is all about. All of our struggle with sin comes down to a tendency to settle for a lesser version of God, a lesser version of ourselves, and a lesser version of what life is intended to be in him. To walk an easier path to a lesser purpose. So the lie of the imi- that the imitation tells us is that we can, for half the cost, have all the taste. But in the end, as we said, it will be a disappointing artificial aftertaste. So let's look at five, what I think are the more prominent counterfeit versions of ourselves that rob us from God's best for us. First, I'm on the screen here. First is the expectation of others, the expectations of others. That's the me others want me to be. The me that others want me to be. Much of our life is lived, and from the very beginning, even the little munchkins, is lived to suit the expectations of other people, what they place on us. Instead of living according to God's expectation, we look about and around and say, who do you want me to be? Mom and dad, who do you want me to be? We looked at authorities like, coaches or bosses or mentors or pastors. We look at their expectation and and listen to their voices and they become the loudest voices in our lives. And when we do, we settle for being what pleases those whose approval matters most to us above him. Even if it means building a false self. Now, now we, we all do this. It's it's unavoidable. We tend to look out and say, who am I supposed to be? I remember someone talking about this saying he he was a second year at uh, Penn State and he was in a, his second, he was an an engineering major in his like third physics class. And he had this moment, he says, what am I doing here? How did I get here? He took a little reflection time and he went all the way back and realized that in seventh grade, he came home from class with a C in physics. And his dad looked at him and he said, son, we don't get C's in science. He never got anything but an A in science from that day on. Even more so, he finds himself almost a decade later sitting in a course in a major because That family, their family, doesn't get C's. He ended up moving on and transitioning to something fundamentally different. But the power of what was true as a seventh grader, the power of expectation told him, this is who you must be. This is who you have to become, an imitation of yourself. Well, second one, but the first is the expectation of others. The second is the imitation of success. It's the me I think I want to be, or or the me that's impressive to see, if you wish. Now, every field of human enterprise has its rock stars, right? I don't care what context you're in, there's a rock star in your context, right? If If you're an entrepreneur, maybe it's a Steve Jobs, or if you're just awesome, it's Brene Brown, you know? Maybe it's, maybe it's Joanna Gaines, right? She's just, you know, I mean, how much shiplap is there in the world now, right? I mean, let's call things what they are. Maybe it's Andy Stanley or, you know, really, Tim Keller. You know what I'm saying? 
Or maybe it's that, that super mom in your neighborhood that somehow manages to have four children to be able to be like president of the PTA, is like super fit, plays on the tennis team, and also runs a business. You can insert your rock star here, whoever that rock star is. But when you haven't come to rest in who God has made us to be, when we haven't come to rest in who God's made us to be, we simply settle for copying someone else. That's who we'll be. Some model of success that, that everyone in our context or in our world praises. Unfortunately, though, when we try to imitate whoever our world calls a success, we ignore the person that God has designed us to be. So, so who's, who's on the pedestal? pedestal? Who's, who's the statue of in your context, in your world, that you're tempted to imitate, to copy? So there's the imitation of success. Thirdly, there's the infatuation of money, the, the me that they pay me to be. The me that they pay me to be. If you don't become who you were created to be, it is easy to become whoever people will pay you to be. And probably in our context, maybe more than anywhere. It isn't hard for the lure of the almighty dollar and of course everything that the almighty dollar can do and procure and make possible to be the primary influence in who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do in a way that leads us to become a false version of who we really are. You know, we might be drawn by the, by the size of, of a paycheck or a given perfection, profession or, or simply by the promise of a steady compensation. So whether, whether it's ambition or whether it's just safety and security, we find ourselves in the pitfall that Jesus warned us about, that we cannot serve both God and money. I had a, someone I was close to a few years ago who, who for over a decade had been a salesman and um, he was stressed. He was like, it, his spirit was constantly crushed. He was constantly having to live up to the expectation. But, but early on, years before, he had decided this is what successful people do. Has the biggest upside and potential. And so, so sales it was. But over the years, like his sense of being, the sense of what he had to offer, the sense of what was left of him, like just was ebbing away. I remember he would, he would fantasize, it's so funny, I have this vivid picture. He would fantasize, he probably brought this up like a dozen times in conversations with me about the days back in his, like in between his college years where he got to work on a camp up in the mountains. And he's like, and, and all day long, I would like, I would split wood. I'd, I'd repair stuff on the camp and I'd like, I'd like fix things and prepare them for the next event. And he's like, oh, what I would do to go back there. But that doesn't pay anything. And so someone who probably in many ways had a whole lot to offer in a different direction was having his soul withered away as he was being pounded into the ground by a sales role that he had no business being in. But it was too late. There, there was a mortgage, there were kids in private school. There was no other option. You just had to keep going. Some of you know this. Some, some of you might be living this. The infatuation of money, becoming the me that they pay me to be. Fourthly, there's the uh, preoccupations of life or the preoccupation of life. That's the me that time makes of me. Another way of saying it, it's, it's the me that I'm too busy not to be. It's the me that I'm too busy not to be. 
being busy makes us into something we're not. It just does. We get caught in the hustle and the bustle of everyday life, assuming that, that the more is better and that somehow the world will collapse if we're not the ones keeping it going and holding it up. And so, so we pack our lives full and we race about with no space for reflection on who we ought to be and what we ought to be doing. We simply become the product of our past choices and our present demands instead of being the people that God has called us and made us to be. So we're distracted, we're overwhelmed, we're exhausted. And, and probably, maybe, possibly, if as we start talking this year about, hey, there's a, there is a version of God living himself out through you. There is a sense of being called into purpose. If your heart's disposition has, has struggled with moving to cynicism of like, well, that must be nice for some people. But I, I, live, I live in the real world and I have a ton of responsibilities and that's just a nice idea. If you struggled with Rolling the eyes of your heart, that's a luxury I just don't have. Might I suggest that the water line might be too high in your life? That the very prospect of having to, to look at and discern and be less preoccupied with all that you have established, all that is set up, that you might need detox. And so if that's where your heart is, most likely you're going to struggle for a bit here. And so I'd invite you into a totally different rhythm, a different exercise over the course of the next several weeks. And honestly, probably my biggest suggestion would be to get John Mark Comer's book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. To say, I, I can't breathe. I, I'm underwater at all times. You talking to me about the idea that God has a call for my life is just nonsense. There's no room for that. And what I want to suggest is that there is room. And the first word work may be to clear room by eliminating the thing that is so prone for all of us. The hurry and the preoccupation with all that we have in our lives. Well, lastly, one of our favorite and maybe our most powerful false self versions is the projection of self. That's the me that I want to be. It's a, a good way of saying this is, uh, or thinking about this, is the, um, the American Idol syndrome. How many of you guys have actually seen American Idol, whether 15, 20 years ago or in its newer version? Not enough of you, clearly. Um, but you've probably seen at some point, right, someone come on in front of the three judges, they close the door, they enter the room, and they're, you know, everyone's a little nervous, and they're so excited to see the stars, you know? And they're like, what are you gonna sing? I'm gonna sing this. And then they start singing, and you're like, oh, no. <laughs> like, no, nobody loved you. Not, nobody loved you enough to be like, you can do a lot of things with your life. But one of the things you should just never do is sing in public. <laughs> like, no one loved them enough to tell them the truth that that's the case. And instead, we did the thing that they, we always do, right? And you can be anything you want. And the answer in that, no, you cannot. 
You cannot. But there was a projection of self, right? I'm, I'm this person. You don't understand. I want to be a singer. I'm going to be a star. I'm going to be someone who, who people cheer for. I want, I want to be able to step into that kind of life. So the projection of self. There's this me that I want to be, that I, that I must be. Many people, maybe, maybe many of us, are unsure that the person that we really are is worth much. That when God was handing out substance and significant and impact and potential and gifting that we just got the short end. And, and so we imagine ourselves to be something that, because we know that that would be something that would matter. We're not sure that our true selves are good enough for people's approval. And so we spend our lives cultivating an image of ourselves that we hope will gain other people's affirmation, admiration, and affection. Or maybe we'll have some kind of particular impact only to lose ourselves in the process. It's the picture, it's the, it's the Wizard of Oz, right? It's, it's, it's Dorothy and, and the Tin Man and the other two characters coming in and they're talking to the Wizard of Oz and, and then Toto goes over and pulls the curtain, you guys remember? And what, is, what does he say? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah, that's, that's what this is. The Wizard of Oz is who we want to be. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I had uh, someone I worked with at a, at a previous church. Good man, really good man. He was, a, he was a great shepherd. I mean, like, he's the kind of guy, I remember going with him um, to the hospital one time and... Um, we walked into that room and like I got to watch what Jesus was like if he walked into a, to a hospital room. Like his, his sense of connectivity, his, his warmth, like the, the sense of relief in the midst of real suffering and struggle and fear, like the way he prayed for them and with them. Like we walked in, there was like a cloud in the room. We walked out and it was like there was air. I felt like I was just front row seat watching something really beautiful and amazing. And he didn't think that was worth much. He, he wanted so bad to be that preacher guy. Like he so wanted to be on stage, to have, to, you know, to be the, the teaching pastor, to be, he, he so wanted that. And, and, and several of us who were in his life were like, bro, like you're awesome. You're incredible one-on-one -on -one with people. And like you have real power, real significant, significance, real impact on people. But it was not what he wanted. He had this, he had this picture of who he was supposed to be who he imagined himself to be, and he was wildly discontented with the reality that he never got the call to step up and preach on a Sunday morning or, or to come and do any of the speaking environments or any of the conferences or, or any of the retreats. And, and what's sad to me is that it led to making, he ended up making decisions, like, like pretty drastic decisions to try and create that environment. And eventually it just all like sifted through his fingers and went to nothing. God redeems all things, but, but here's somebody who had real impact, real power, who had, when he lived out of the reality of who he was, like, it was, it was powerful, but he didn't like mercy. It didn't seem like as big of a deal or as significant of a thing or as powerful of a gift. And so he missed the whole thing. He lost out. He had a version, a false version of himself that he sought to live. Parker Palmer in his awesome little book, Let Your Life Speak, says this. He says, there 
is a great gulf between the way my ego wants me to identify me with its protective masks and self-serving fictions and my true self. Here's the thing, loved ones. These five versions, and there's, of course, multiple versions of those and, and an amalgamation of a couple of those. And, but they're always going to be in constant competition with the me that God has made me to be. There will always be competition between those five and the you that God has made you to be. That's what it means to live here. If we're not careful, one or all of these versions of ourselves will be who we become. The real reason that we chase these lesser versions of ourselves is that we bought into a lesser version of who God is, into a lesser version of what life is supposed to be. And that's actually, ironically, where most, if not all, of our sin comes from. All the sin in our lives, we can be traced back to, if you, if you trace it back far enough, it usually leads you to one of these versions of yourself. Think about it. Last time you were really angry. The last time you found yourself medicating in whatever addiction or methodology that you go to. If you trace that all the way back, last time you were boasting or last time you were self-deprecating. Last time you were really, really prideful. Last time you were gossiping or envying. Last time you told a lie. You could probably trace it back to one of these pictures, these imaginary versions of yourself, these, these false interpretations of who you really are and trying to prop them up make them more real and matter. This is why it's so pivotal that we agree with God and be the people that he's made us to be and not some false version of it. To the degree that we see and that we delight in the person that God's made us to be, all those lesser versions will begin to pale in comparison. So today, I think God's inviting us to, to break free from false versions of who he is and of who we are, who we've settled for. He's calling us to, to peel back the layers of doubt and disappointment. He's telling us to look into the areas of our sin that have led us to, to become versions of who we are. And here's the thing is, as we... As we, as we push back against the false versions of who we are, we uncover to our delight and to our joy the version of who God has made us to be. But we must go to him, and that's principle number two, that we must return to the maker of our true selves. We must move to him. I think what I love about Jeremiah chapter four is that it points us back to God himself, that he's the truest voice. He's the one speaking the loudest, most powerful, most transformative, most satisfying, most joy-bringing reality. He's the one who by speaking creates and makes beautiful. And so it's only seeing our true selves, version of God, only in seeing that in our true version of ourselves do we begin to live it out, that we find ourselves with joy. And that's what God says. He says, return to me. 
This is, this is, this is pivotal. No true version of ourselves can be found outside of him. No true version of who you are, of who you really are, can be found outside of him. It must come from him. It must be spoken by him. It must be confirmed by him. Return to me. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 10, 10. He says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. The thief wants to come in. The evil one comes and he wants to tell you a bunch of false stuff. He wants to convince you. And you know what will happen? Destruction and death. But I came, Jesus says, that you may have life and have it abundantly. Another version says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Like I, I think sometimes in an effort to, to, be, to like not, not be prosperity gospel, which is just heresy, we, we settle for this idea that life is supposed to be humdrum and you just scrape by, guys. Just make it. Just make it. Hang on. And, and, and Jesus is saying, listen, I came to free you and aliven you and awaken you. I came to allow you to become the true reality of who you are. And you know what you'll experience? Abundance, flourishing. That's why I came. Not so you can white knuckle it through the 60, 70, 80 years of your life. There's this flourishing life that he's come to bring. So I don't know if you're tired of the lesser voices that are dictating to you who you're supposed to be. Maybe you're tired of the futility of the forged versions of yourself. That's anything that's wildly less than everything God has designed and purposed. Maybe it's time for you to ask God who you are, who he's made you to be. Time to return to him, as he would say. It's time to break up and peel back the false versions of ourselves. And we become to, that we may begin to uncover our true identity, the, ber- the best version of who he's created us to be. And, and to be sure, this kind of breaking up, this, it can be painful. You run a plow through the hardness of your own heart or the things you've committed to or the things you're grasping onto, and it will be difficult, undoubtedly so. The process can be arduous, and it usually is lengthier than we wish. The peeling back will likely be a cause for vulnerability. It will require us to risk with our hearts to be exposed, probably to be hurt at times. The freedom and joy on the other side, God says, is worth it. Because as we said week one, I am with you. Loved ones, God can only relate to who you really are. We've said this before here at Roswell. I mean, we all come in trying to pretend to be something to a degree, especially we're feeling insecure or uncertain. But, but God can only relate to the real you. The real God has to relate to the real you. And so if you have, don't have a real God, then you won't be able to relate to you. And if you're not the real you, then it doesn't matter who God is because... He's not who he's relating to. So God wants, can only relate to the real you. That's what he's inviting you to. He's inviting Jeremiah, inviting every people throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. He's basically looking at people saying like, I made you, I've called you, I have purposes for you. Don't violate yourself. Come to me instead and live out the true reality of who I made you to be.
And Jesus is saying that to us this morning, even as we come to this table. You see, this meal is just an ultimate invitation to put down your false self today. Oh, you'll have to put it down again. Like it's, it's in there. It's, it's stuck. It hangs on. You'll have to put it down again. No doubt about it. It doesn't die easy. But this table is a meal that says, come as you really are. It's a, it's a table. It's a meal. It's a reminder that you can come as you really are. That there's no room for pretense here. That the expectations that are on you according to the law have been met by another. And so the expectations of others are that you've actually put your expectations on him and what he's done for you. And so as we take the bread and cup, that's what we experience. We don't need to project ourselves into this. No, there's one who actually projected himself for us, who gave himself for us. So we come as we are to receive by his sacrifice, by his unmerited grace, by his unfathomable love for us, which frees us, frees us to break up that follow ground, to circumcise our hearts and to begin to live out out of the true reality of who we are, unencumbered by counterfeits. So as we come forward, come to him. And as best you can, bring who you are with you. He longs for it. And he paid the ultimate price so that the real you could be in real communion with the real him. Let's pray. Father, we want to honor you above all else. We want to glorify you. We want our lives to be a reflection of who you are, who you've made us to be, and what you purposed. Lord, we just want to recognize that when we find ourselves living a false version of ourselves, we're actually rejecting you. And Lord, we don't want to reject you. You have good for us. You've made us for good. And so, Lord, right now we want to come and we want to surrender all the false ways in which we're trying to be something and agree with you that you have indeed made us something and remade us in Christ into someone. And, Lord, would you give us the courage to, to dig up the false things, to stop pretending, to repent of the ways in which, the ways in which our pretending is wreaking havoc on our lives, is giving power to sin in our lives. Lord, would you free us and would you give us the flourishing life that comes through you? Not the easy life, not the pain-free life, but the flourishing life that comes in Jesus Christ. That's what we long for. That's what we come to receive as we come and take the body and your body and your blood. So, Lord, receive our lives as a living sacrifice as we receive you as our ultimate sacrifice. We love you, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you belong to Jesus Christ, this is your meal. Come, the real you. Come and receive the real Jesus Christ.